Uh, as Andrew mentioned, my, my name is Avery Kelly. My wife and I do the student ministry here. So if you don't know me, it's probably because you don't have children between 6th and 12th grade. If you do have children in those ages and you still don't know me, youth starts January 15th. We meet every Wednesday, 6.45 to 8.30. We want to see you there. So with the mandatory youth ministry plug out of the way, uh, I do want to say how delighted and privileged I am to be able to bring the word of the Lord to you this morning. Um, it is my first sermon, as Andrew mentioned, so apparently I haven't earned the right of the cool like over-the-ear microphone thing yet. <laughs> no, not really. We had some issues with it this morning. So uh, my biggest scare now isn't messing up my sermon. It's learning how to turn the pages with one hand. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, this morning, though, we will be in Luke chapter 2, uh, so you can go ahead and be turning there if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the words will be on the screen. Before we get into the word, though, I would like to just take a, a quick prayer to prepare our hearts for it. So if you will, pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning and our time together. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to come before you on the first Lord's Day of the year to hear from your word. As we come to your word this morning, God, my, my ultimate prayer would just be that you would soften our hearts to receive the truth that you have for us, uh, that you would illumine the text for us and help us to uh, understand it, to see your glory in it, and help us to uh, see your truth, that it would change us and help us to seek after you more fully. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 2, we'll be picking up in uh, verse 22, as you see, just to give you a little bit of context as we head into this moment. This book is written by Luke, uh, the same author of Acts, and he writes both of these books as a letter to a dear friend named Theophilus. Uh, he writes it to give an eyewitness account to the history of Christianity to show that these things are really true. All these things that the apostles are teaching and that the people have been hearing are true and can be verified. And at this point in the text so far, John the Baptist has already been born. Uh, there have been several prophecies about the birth of Jesus leading up to this, and now Mary and Joseph have actually given birth to Jesus. They've already done the inn, the swaddling clothing, the manger, all the stuff that we normally hear about at Christmas. Uh, the angels appear to some shepherds at the beginning of chapter 2, right before we start, and of course their immediate uh, response is fear because out of nowhere these angels pop up and they're terrified because of it. And the angels, of course, tell them there's nothing to be afraid of. We come with good news. A Savior has been born. The shepherds rush off, they see Jesus, and then they come back glorifying God. And uh, right before our text picks up, Mary and Joseph have taken Jesus for his circumcision. And then we pick up in verse 22 of Luke chapter 2. Read along with me. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem, that is Jesus, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to uh, offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation." 
that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." In verse 36, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So we hate to wait. And we've just come out of a season that exposes how much we hate to wait, how awful it is. In December, as Christmas approaches and we cross the days off our calendar and it gets closer and closer, the anticipation gets unbearable. We're waiting to see what we've gotten from others. We even wait to see our loved ones open the gifts that we've gotten them. And it just gets to be too much. In fact, Allison and I are so bad at waiting that we have almost never given gifts on Christmas. And since we've been married, the latest we've waited has been Christmas Eve. This year, I think we made it to December 15th which is two days before my birthday. I got my birthday presents in November. We hate to wait. It's awful. It's just too hard. For a lot of us, for a lot of us though, this season causes a, a waiting and a longing that's much harder than just waiting on presents. Maybe you think of the loved ones that you've lost this year, the first Christmas without them here, a new year where they won't be here. Maybe this time marks another year past where you still haven't found that husband or that wife that you're longing to meet. Maybe it's another year where the child that you've so desperately wanted for so long still hasn't come. And you start to think, you start to wonder in your heart, will it ever happen? Something we've all experienced in our lives and something that you may be experiencing this very morning as you come in is that there is a difficulty in our waiting. We often find ourselves filled with uncertainty, wondering in our waiting. We know the truth of the gospel. We hear it plenty. We just can't see or understand how it applies to our situation. And the difficulty and uncertainty of our waiting, we're blinded to the truth. We just wonder, how could I possibly get out of this? The bills are due. I've been paid. It's not going to cut it this time. Money's not going to rain down from the sky. Will this ever end? How will I get through this? We can't understand how Jesus helps any of it either. He's not going to suddenly show up and hand me $1,000, as nice as that would be. And so we sit there and think, how is God going to fix this? We begin to rely on ourselves and our own solutions, our own power to try and fix these difficult situations that we find ourselves waiting in. We all wait for something. 
We all experience the uneasiness and frustration of waiting for some kind of deliverance from our pain, an answer to our sorrows, or a solution to our problems. Yet only Christ can truly satisfy these longings in our heart. So the question that I want to ask this morning and suggest that the text answers is, how do we wait well? How do we wait well? If you're a Christian this morning, you know the truth I talked about a moment ago. You know there's a glorious future toward which we can look of a time without suffering or sin or sorrow. But if you just look around the world, any news headline, or you even take stock of your own situation, we very quickly realize we are far from that future. And so what do we do now? How do we wait well in the brokenness until then? Firstly, Luke gives us two models to this text. So I want us to look at the models for our waiting in this text. The two godly models that we get are that of Simeon and Anna that we read about this morning. And first, I want to address the model of Simeon. See, Simeon is a perfect picture of our corporate waiting. In verse 25, if you'll read along with me, it says, This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's a faithful Israelite who has continued to hope for the Messiah, even into old age. He's looking around at what Israel has become, and he's longing for its rescue. He wants to see it restored. And this is the kind of waiting that we all experience when we look around the world today and see so clearly its brokenness. Another corrupt government, another country in protest because of oppression from its leadership, One more school shooting, injustice, racism, hatred, sickness, disease, death, it's all around us. We can't escape it. And we look around, it just makes us long for the day when the world will be made right, when we'll finally see it redeemed and glorified. And so what was Simeon's response in this moment? How did he wait in these moments? The text tells us he waited in faithful devotion and prayer empowered and led by the Holy Spirit, and he believed on the Lord and his promises. We see in the text that it calls him devout and righteous, and there are three mentions of the Holy Spirit being with him. The Spirit was upon Simeon, the Spirit revealed truth and a promise to Simeon, and the Spirit led Simeon into the temple. Then, once he's led by the Spirit into the temple, and he sees the fulfillment of God's promise, the baby Jesus, and holds him in his arms, he can't help but pray and praise God for what he's done. See, when Simeon was faced with a difficult longing for the rescue and comfort of God for Israel, he focuses on God. He continues to worship and pray and commune with the Father, waiting for the fulfillment of his promises. And so what Simeon shows us is that there's nothing wrong with longing for the rescue and redemption of the world. This is right and good, but he doesn't give up on God and assume it's now up to himself to do all the rescuing. No, he leans into God's promises. He waits on him. He continues faithfully trusting in the promise, worshiping and praying. And then we have the model of Anna. So we've looked at Simeon, and now we have Anna, who is a little bit more personal. She embodies the personal struggle and hardships that we all face. 
I mean, think about it. She's a woman who's widowed after only seven years of marriage. And then depending on how you translate the text, she either lives for 84 years as a widow or at least to the age of 84 as a widow. She lives years and years of loneliness. She had the husband and she lost him. It seems, according to the text, that she never had the child that I'm sure she wanted. She lived in loneliness. Maybe you're not a widow struggling with loneliness this morning, though. Maybe your suffering is watching a grandparent's health quickly decline. Maybe it's the pain of having to fight day after day for your marriage or the defeat of yet another month gone by without getting that child you want. In all of this, though, the response is the same when we look at Anna. In all of her struggling and difficulty, what does she do? Verse 37 gives us the answer. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She devotes her time wholly to the Lord in prayer and worship. She refuses to leave his presence because she realizes there is no other place that she can truly turn to. There's no other place that offers her the comfort and the peace and the promise aside from the Lord's presence. When she's distressed and struggling and waiting for redemption, she turns to the Lord to rest in his presence and his promises and pursues communion with him through prayer. And so Anna shows us that in our hardest and most painful personal waiting, there is still hope. When you've just had another knockdown, drag out fight with your spouse and you think the marriage won't make it. When you're certain there's no way you can pay rent, there is only one place we can turn to. We refuse to depart from the presence of the Lord. We pursue him in prayer and worship, and we look to him as our consolation. But maybe all this just sounds like pie-in-the-sky, heartwarming stories to you. You know, uh, oh, the sweet by-and-by when Messiah comes, surely that'll be a great day. It doesn't seem real to you. What we must see is that Simeon and Anna can wait in this way. They were able to wait in this way because they see Jesus himself as the true consolation of their waiting. It's not just a good-feeling delusion that makes them feel better. There's a reality upon which their hope is founded. And so we look at the consolation of our waiting. Simeon clearly shows that Jesus is this consolation when after years of waiting, as we saw, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. After years of waiting, he holds Jesus and cries out to God in verses 39, uh, 29 and 30, you're letting me depart in peace, God. I can die now because you've delivered on your promise for my eyes have seen your salvation. And get this, he's not looking at Augustus Caesar. He's not looking at the book of the law or a code of ethics or a bag of money in front of him. No, he's looking at Jesus. And he says, you are our consolation. You are our comfort, our redemption, and our rescue. It is Jesus Now, Anna may be an easier connection for most of us, though. Again, she embodies that sort of personal suffering that many of us experience all the time, and many of us are probably experiencing this morning. She experiences all the hardship and turmoil, yet she still looks to Jesus as her consolation and redemption. 
When Jesus is in the temple, she goes around to tell everybody, hoping for the redemption, that he's there. And it's often hard for us to see how she can look to Jesus in the midst of personal suffering, because when we're in the midst of this personal suffering, a lot of times we look to the law instead. We look to our law-keeping rather than Jesus' perfect fulfillment. We look to our law keeping, and this is apparent because when we read this passage, I know the first couple of times I read through it, and probably as I read through it this morning, you may have uh, realized or, or seen that there's this big section that jumps out to us that's kind of weird. It's, it's all this law stuff. See, in verse 22, it talks about purification according to the law. Verse 23 mentions dedication to the Lord written in the law. Uh, verse 24 has a sacrifice offering from the law. And then we get this mention of Simeon being this righteous and devout man. And then in 27, we see Mary and Joseph, Joseph are doing for Jesus what is customary under the law. There's this big section that's just staring us straight in the face, we're confronted by this glaring example of devout law-keeping, which normally makes us pretty uncomfortable. Because when we see the demands of the law, what does it reflect? How awful we are at keeping the law. Anytime we look at the law and its demands, we immediately realize, oh, I haven't done that or that, and I don't think I've ever done that. We begin to lose focus, and instead of looking to Christ, we look to how awful we are. We dwell on the ways that we have failed, and this mindset can be so hard to shake, especially when we have examples like Simeon and Anna in the text. Simeon, the righteous and devout man, is blessed by God to know for certain that he will see the answer to his waiting. He'll see the Messiah before he dies. And then Anna, who is so faithful, it says that she wouldn't leave the temple despite all of her hardship, she gets to see the redemption as well. In our minds, we can't help, make, uh, help but make this connection. Simeon was devout. He kept the law. So God gave him what he longed for. Anna was faithful. She saw her redemption. And then we start thinking about all these promises in the Old Testament that were dependent on law-keeping. And again, this parallel forms in our mind to our situation. They kept the law. They got the blessings. They failed to keep the law. They got the curses. And we start to put this into our own situation. So when we find ourselves suffering in hard situations like Anna, we begin to think, I haven't kept the law well at all. I haven't been faithful. Maybe God is punishing me because I haven't been faithful enough. Maybe God is allowing this affliction and hardship because I've allowed too much sin to enter my life. We become like a dog who doesn't want to play fetch, right? You can lead him outside and you find the best stick you can and you wag it in his face and he looks all excited and you toss the stick out as far as you can, but he just sits there. And you okay, he didn't get it. Boy, it's out there. Go get it, boy, it's out there. And the whole time that you're pointing at this stick, the thing that should be the object of his desire, he's just staring at your finger and you look like an idiot. Luke is pointing to the stick here and we're just sitting there looking at his finger. Our focus shifts from Jesus to the law. And even though the text points in the completely opposite direction, keeping the law well becomes our consolation to us. It becomes the answer to our waiting, but we know that it will never actually deliver us because we'll never be good enough. We'll never be able to fulfill the law. 
And in fact, there is only one person in history who's been able to do what none of us can. And of course, that's Jesus. And so we look to Jesus' perfect fulfillment of the law. Jesus is able to be our consolation because he perfectly fulfilled and kept the law when we couldn't. And again, we have this big chunk of law in this passage, and I want us to think about that again, but to view it in sort of a different, from a different angle this time. What we see by this section, what I think Luke wants us to see by this section, is that from his very birth, Jesus perfectly kept the law. He subjects himself to being born under the law in the flesh in order to perfectly fulfill it because we know that we're unable to. Now, don't miss the significance of this. He wasn't born into a pampered life set up for success. He knows our afflictions. And when we uh, even look at the sacrifice that his parents give of the two turtle doves, Andy talked about this a few weeks ago, that was the poor sacrifice. You could find these birds in your backyard and catch them with no issue. Jesus is born into poverty. He's not born into a kingdom in a pampered life that gives him everything he needs, waits on him hand and foot so he never has to worry or struggle or face temptation or sorrow or grief. He's born into poverty. He humbles himself by taking on flesh and being born in that state, being born into a family of ill repute because of him and how he came about. He faces the temptations and the sorrow, the grief, the distress, and the pain that we all face, just like you and me. Yet he still perfectly keeps the law. And he didn't do this just to say, see, it can be done, just do better. You've just got to do better and everything will be okay. And he didn't even do it for his own reward. Jesus perfectly fulfills the law because we can't, so that we don't have to. And his perfect fulfillment is what makes him worthy to go to the cross and die the death that we deserve and suffer the wrath and punishment that we deserve on our behalf. His perfection and righteousness make him the only worthy one in history who could take our sins on himself, stand in our place to receive the wrath and punishment of God that we deserve, all so that in exchange he could give us the reward that he has earned. By his perfect fulfillment of the law and perfect substitutionary death, we receive the pleasure and blessing of God. Jesus is the answer to our waiting because he perfectly stood in our place at every point in life, not just the cross. And he perfectly fulfilled the demands of God at every point where we have failed to do so. When we ask ourselves then, am I being punished because I haven't kept the law well enough? Then you must know the answer is a resounding no, of course not, because we've kept the law in Christ. And if you wonder, well, I know I'm going to continue to fail. Can I still have this hope? Surely God will get tired of constant failure. Yes, you can have hope, of course, because Christ fulfilled the law in your place. Our security is tied to the perfect law-keeping work and propitiatory death of Christ, not our abilities or our goodness or our work. See, it's so natural for us to look to ourselves in the midst of our waiting, assuming it's our responsibility to earn the pleasure and blessing of God, but this is never good enough. 
And you know this, I'm sure all of us have experienced the failure of trying to muster up the strength to complete the work on your own. We've all had that defeat. There's a better hope, though. There is consolation to our waiting, and it's Jesus who went to incredible lengths, who stood in our place in poverty and hardship, who perfectly kept the law in our stead, who died our death and suffered the wrath we deserve to perfectly accomplish the guarantee of peace, of a future hope, and a future free from sickness, sin, death, sorrow, and the anguish of waiting. He has secured that future for us. And this is the answer to our waiting and our hope. So we look to Christ as our consolation because he knows our suffering. He promises rescue from it, and he accomplishes our redemption for us. And so we've seen the models for how we wait and the reason why we're able to wait in such a way. But maybe you still struggle with this. Maybe this way still just doesn't make sense to you. And I think the text addresses this by presenting a challenge to us all. See, there's a challenge to consider what the way we reveal, what the way we wait reveals about our heart. So we look at the revelation of our waiting. What does our waiting show about our heart? See, after praising God for getting to see the Savior, Simeon gives this rather odd blessing to Mary and Joseph. He says to Mary, starting in verse 34, if you'll read along with me, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's a weird blessing, Right? I mean, he's just praised God for seeing this salvation, and then he goes up to Mary and Joseph, and he says, hey, uh, your child is going to be rejected basically by everyone. Uh, he's also going to be responsible for the fall and rising of many, and a sword's going to go through your soul. That's a weird thing to hear when you don't even know who this guy is. The stranger's just come up to you and said that, but it's important. It's an important point to the text because it shows us that Jesus comes to enact judgment, good or bad, and that he comes to reveal hearts. See, he comes to enact judgment. What does Simeon mean by the fall and rising of many in Israel? That's kind of a weird phrase. Well, once again, he's pointing to Jesus as the promised Messiah. Jesus is the one who has been prophesied about since Genesis 3 in the Old Testament. He's coming to vindicate those who have faithfully waited to, for the fulfillment of God's promises. And he's also come to judge those who have turned their back on those promises to trust in their own strength, their own religiosity, and their own assumed holiness. Jesus comes to accomplish the victory over sin and grant those who believe, him in, new, believe in him new life, redemption, rescue, and consolation. But he also comes to bring judgment on those who see anything else as their savior because nothing else works. In this text, Simeon is saying that Jesus will bring one of two things. He will either bring blessing and salvation, or he'll bring condemnation and judgment. There is no middle ground to it. He is coming as one to be opposed and rejected by many for the claims that he makes, whether it's because he doesn't align with what your view of a Savior is, or because his lordship infringes on your beliefs and your autonomy. 
He comes as the Savior who brings peace and salvation, but he also comes as the one who will reveal our hearts. And that's the challenge here. He comes to reveal our hearts. Simeon is essentially asking us in this moment, what are you waiting for? What are you really waiting for? Is the deliverer just a means to an end for you? Are you like Israel, just waiting for deliverance from Rome, the solution to a problem? Are you just waiting to finally meet that spouse? Or maybe you're just seeking financial stability and you think Jesus is the way that you're going to get there. Or are you truly waiting for the deliverance of the Savior? And see, this is something that we all struggle with. I struggle with this a lot. Thankfully, I've got the spouse thing covered and covered well. Praise God for that. I often tell Allison that uh, I have to be a Presbyterian because the only thing this thing would have happened is by some work of predestination. So I'm thankful to have that covered. But that doesn't mean that I'm fine with everything. There are often times when the medical bills roll in, rent's due, we've already been paid, and a lot of times I just want to pray in my heart, Jesus, just give me some more money. That's what I need right now. If you just give me money, life will be okay. We find ourselves in that situation so often. And Jesus comes to reveal our heart in these moments. And how we wait shows where that heart is. You either only see Jesus as the means to your personal wants and desires, or you see Jesus as the true deliverer who offers the only rescue from brokenness even if that means not seeing the results that you want right now or not seeing them for years to come. This is the kind of waiting that is only possible, though, if the Savior himself is the blessing you long for, if Jesus himself is your answer. In an interview with Stephen Colbert a number of years ago, Anderson Cooper uh, talked to him about overcoming grief. He lost his father and brother in an accident at a young age, and it was a really difficult thing to get through. And in the interview, he first goes on to talk about his mother's response, and he says that the only thing that got his mother through it was faith and love for God. See, she knew that in her deepest, darkest pain, there was only one place that she could truly turn to, and it was the presence of the Lord. She knew there was nowhere else that would truly give her comfort or peace but the presence of God. And then later on, commenting on the experience of our grief and overcoming it, uh, Stephen Colbert himself has this to say, that's the great gift in my tradition of the sacrifice of Christ, that God does it too. You're really not alone. God does it too. Jesus is the answer to the pain and difficulty of our longing for deliverance because he entered into a world of sin to suffer for our sake. But Simeon is showing us that this is only true if we receive him as Savior, if we trust in him and reveal our heart to be one that truly longs for him, despite what that may mean for us temporally. See, if Jesus is what we truly long for, if he's the ultimate answer to all our waiting, this will cause us to wait like Simeon and Anna. In the hardest, most frustrating, painful waiting like Anna, we know that the only place worth turning to is communion with God through prayer and worship. We go there because we know the sure foundation of our hope in Christ. 
will be drawn to the Father by the Spirit in worship, in prayer, in trust, in the promises that have been fulfilled in Christ. So the call of this text is to ask in your waiting, what is it that I'm waiting for? What is my heart's desire right now? And the challenge is to find your heart's desire in Christ and your trust in Christ rather than a specific solution to your problem or an answer to your longing. And when you find yourself there, you have a hope that cannot be shaken, no matter the suffering, the passing of a loved one, a strained relationship, the stress of raising children, or a seemingly unconquerable depression. Through it all, this hope pushes us to humble reliance upon the Spirit, bringing us to the Father in worship and communion. Practically, though, what does it look like? What do you actually do in your waiting? We've seen these kind of models. We've seen how godly people wait. But day to day, what does that actually look like? Well, again, like Simeon and Anna, we trust in God. We continue in worship. We petition him in prayer and continue to live for his glory. We don't worry about the situation or how it will turn out, as hard as that is, but instead, as Peter says, we cast our anxieties on God because he cares for us. We trust in God as our comfort and for our comfort. When Luke talks about the consolation of Israel here, it's a pretty clear reference to Isaiah 40. And we'll have this on the screen. There we read the the following text. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. And then we skip down a little bit. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Christ is our comfort. He is the Lord who will never faint. He will never get tired. And he gives us that same strength and power. When we wait in the Lord, he renews our strength. He helps us to walk through our difficulties and our pains. And he walks through it with us. He is our strength. He is our hope. And he is our comfort in waiting. See, we live a perpetual life of waiting Even in our best times, everything seems to be going peachy in your life. If you just look around the world, we see all its brokenness, and there is a frustration, a sorrow, and a longing for redemption. And God has graciously and lovingly provided us with the answer to that longing and a sure hope to our waiting. Elizabeth Elliot was an inspirational author and speaker, as well as the wife of Jim Elliot, the famous missionary. And uh, many of you probably know this story, but if you don't, her and her husband, along with some others, decided to share the gospel uh, with the Aka Indian tribe in Ecuador. And in January 1956, just 10 months after the birth of their daughter, Valerie, Jim and some friends were speared and killed by that tribe. Elizabeth didn't run, though. 
She didn't turn and go home. And the horrible grief and suffering that she experienced, she stayed and eventually took her daughter into that same village to work and to share the gospel with the same tribe that was responsible for her husband's death. And then years later, after marrying a pastor, she had to watch his health decline as he passed away due to cancer. Widowed twice, seeing the murder of her first husband, Elizabeth certainly knows what it means to suffer. She's certainly an example of a modern-day Anna. And what was her response? It can be summed up in an old Saxon poem that she popularized. It's got some, some old kind of odd language, so I apologize for that, but it'll be up on the screens for you to follow along with me. It's an important poem that gives a beautiful glance into how we respond to these things. It ends like this. Many a question, many a fear. Many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven. Time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing, leave all results, do the next thing. Look to his strength and his power. Don't look to the results and trust in him. Continue in life, do the next thing. And here's the last verse of it. Looking for Jesus ever serener. Working on suffering, be thy demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance, be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then as he beckons thee, do the next thing. The reason we love to celebrate the, the birth of Christ every year at Christmas and recount the stories and go on and on about it is because of what they mean for us. His birth is what allows for his perfect life and sacrificial death that accomplishes our victory, that accomplishes the victory over sin and guarantees a life and a future free from the suffering and sorrow, the pain and the defeat and the anguish of waiting. It provides us with a foundation upon which we can rest in faithful prayer and worship as we wait for our consolation and our redemption. His life and death provide us with a hope and assurance that allows us to wait in the pain and walk through it with him in his presence. And so we ask again, how do we wait well? We wait with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the consolation of Israel, the consolation for our waiting, the reason and foundation for our hope. We look to him as the one who provides rest, comfort, and assurance and we do the next thing. Let's go to God in prayer. And uh, those of you who are serving communion this morning, if you'd come forward at this time. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the promise that you give us. God, we thank you that you are a God who is willing to stoop down from his heavenly throne, to humble himself by taking on flesh, being born into poverty, to stand in our place at every moment in life. At every difficult temptation and sorrow and grief, we know that you were there. You stood firm. You kept the law. You fulfilled the demands when we couldn't. 
And because of that fulfillment, because of that perfect life, you then were worthy to go to the cross to die the death that we deserve, to suffer the wrath that we should suffer, all so that in exchange we get your blessing and your reward. We get the pleasure of God. We get adoption as sons and daughters to be able to call God Abba Father and have a future we can look forward to. In the midst of deep and dark suffering, we can say there is a day coming when this will be made right. There is a day coming when we'll no longer see death, when you will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And we thank you that you are a God who in the midst of the brokenness now until that future, you give us a comfort and a peace through the spirit that leads us to worship you, God. I pray that you would make that a reality in our hearts, that you would help us to see where we stand before you, whether our desire is truly for you or for something else, God. And if it's for something else, I pray that you would bring us to repentance and faith, to trust in you instead, realizing that there is no leader, there is no emperor, there is no solution, there is no bag of money that can help us. Only you Only you, God, can give us that comfort and that peace, and I pray that you would bring us to you to help us see that. Thank you for your truth this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.